Chinese companies serve dinner, which sounds great, but it also has this sort of implicit implication that you are expected to stick around. Or that there's at least a benefit if you do to a certain hour. You know, people should be going home and doing whatever they wanted, whether that's taking care of their family, whether that's going for a run, whether Mm -hmm. that's hanging out with friends. You know, we need to be, we need well-rounded workers if we are going to be a happy and productive workforce. average CEO reads 60 books per year, and many attribute their success to this habit of constant learning. This is the difference between those who actualize and those who fail. This automization of their learning, this 1% better every day. On the MentorBox podcast, we're making it easy for you to build and maintain that same habit, the same type of constant lifelong learning as those CEOs, simply by listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and tune in for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and every Friday. And if you want to dig deeper into what our incredible guests teach, make sure to go to mentorbox.com and become a member today. Everyone, welcome to the MentorBox Podcast. You are listening because you are a person of action. But action, of course, must be supported by deep knowledge. Education is a deliberate, lifelong pursuit, and you know that the fastest, most effective way to learn is from the masters themselves. By harnessing the power of the world's top innovators and thought leaders, you too can effect positive change for your community, business, and the world at large. That's why today, we're speaking with Emily Chang. Emily is a journalist currently acting as anchor for Bloomberg TV, hosting Bloomberg Tech. A graduate of Harvard, she has been reporting on the major players in Silicon Valley now for the better part of a decade. In her many interviews with high-profile innovators and movers of capital, she has helped uncover professional cultures that appear to be anything but professional. Her book, Brotopia, discusses the stark inequality and sexism endemic of many nation-leading companies in the tech sector. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Get ready for some truth. Hello, 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 and welcome to this Mentor Box podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lay, content coordinator, and today I am here with Emily Chang, author of Brotopia. I'm actually in her um, Bloomberg news office right now in uh, Pier 3 in San Francisco. So, Emily, thank you so much for inviting me in. This is really cool. Thank you for coming. It's great to have you. Yeah, so uh, we did a a workshop that we'll be releasing um, sometime soon, about a week or two ago, and now we're following up with a podcast to kind of broaden the topic of of Brotopia and the sort of sexism that exists in Silicon Valley. Can you explain why you wrote this book, what you found, and everything in there? Well, to me, Brotopia, the word, the title, perfectly encapsulates this idea of Silicon Valley as a modern utopia where anyone can change the world, make their own rules if they're a man. But if you're a woman, it's incomparably harder. Not impossible, but orders of magnitude more difficult. Mm -hmm. And if you just look at the numbers, women hold 25% of jobs across the industry. Women account for about 7% of venture capital investors. And companies led by women get just 2% 
of funding. And I hardly believe that is because women have just 2% of good ideas. And so, you know, the data has always been there, but there hasn't been a lot of momentum and impetus to change because Silicon Valley and these technology companies have created such incredible things. And so there hasn't Mm -hmm. been necessarily a lot of incentive. But, you know, I like to think about how different the world might be if more women had had a seat at the table from from the beginning. If, you know, I think about the women who didn't get a chance to start the next Facebook or the next Google or the next Apple. And I don't want to wait another 30 years and be asking ourselves the same question three decades from now. Mm -hmm. Before we continue, I think it's important for me to set up the disclaimer that I'm a I'm a white man in Silicon Valley, a straight white man. And I I do feel as if a lot of the people that are making the big moves in Silicon Valley look and act a lot like me. And I, for one, absolutely think that that is a strong advantage that I've, in some cases, already you know, capitalized on in, in many ways, just in the professional world and all of that. And I do think this is an extremely important issue. And I want to, before we kind of move on to more broad topics, I want to ask you about the one quote that I took away as perhaps most important from the book, um, personally for me. And it's in reference to the uh, the Demore case that came out with Google when that guy wrote that sort of manifesto as to why men should continue doing what they're doing and, and the gender gap in Silicon Valley maybe isn't that big of a deal. Your sort of response to that, based on another response from Jonathan Zunger, a Google employee, was, is it more important to systematize than to empathize? And also, do we really want any one kind of person running these organizations, i.e. men as um, Damore. What was his first name again? James Damore. James Damore, as he suggested. Can you just elaborate on that sort of discussion? First of all, I'm happy to be having this conversation with you, and we need men to be part of this conversation as well. This isn't about excluding anyone. In fact, if things are going to change, we need everyone to be involved. Everybody chipping in. And so I'm grateful, you know, that you are shining a light on these topics. You know, James Damore was basically repeating the same toxic assumption that's been held for decades about who makes a good computer programmer. This idea that antisocial, mostly white male (laughs) nerds are the only ones or the best uh, ones who can do this job. And, you know, there's no evidence to support the idea that people who don't like people or are better at systematizing are better at this than people who do. In fact, there's a great argument to be made that we need people who care about people and do empathize and understand the problems of the users that they're trying to be to solve to be a part of this world as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you said it exactly. You know, it makes no sense to have just one kind of person building products and services that serve billions and billions of people, all kinds of people around the world, men and women. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, unfortunately, and I I dive into this in the book, there's a fascinating history of how that stereotype came to be. But, you know, movies and television did not create it. Really, the tech industry did by having such a narrow idea of who can do this job. Mm -hmm. I've read about creator's bias, which is the sort of idea when the same group of people make a product and they, you know, they give it to the world. And then all of a sudden they realize that those using that product don't experience it the way that the creator is expected to based on their own personal sort of schema understanding of the world. I think Airbnb was an example of this where there was some racism, um, some discrimination in, in who could actually, you know, take homes or take Airbnbs when they were signing up, discrimination based on race. And then, um, just protection for women with some apps like Uber in certain places that has resulted in assault and that sort of thing. There seems to be a lot of instances, even Facebook with its advertising 
systems has resulted in a little bit of discrimination. This seems to be pretty prominent, and I think it's it's like it's pretty clear evidence that diversifying who is you know leading and creating these products and these services and just tech in general, you know, diversifying that field would make things a lot better. Absolutely. I mean, we all come to the table with our own bias and our own life experience and our own perspective, and all of those perspectives are valuable. So, you know, all of the examples you mentioned, absolutely, that is that is evidence of the creator's bias. You know, facial recognition technology mm-hmm. is already sexist and racist and yeah. doesn't recognize women and people of color as easily as it, as it does white men. I interviewed Evan Williams, the co-founder of Twitter in the book, and he told me that he believes if women had been on the early Twitter team, that maybe online harassment and trolling wouldn't be such a problem. They weren't thinking about the negative things that could be done with Twitter when they were building it. They were thinking about all the wonderful and amazing things that could be done with it, not how it could be used to send death threats or how it could be used to send rape threats. And maybe if they had been thinking about those things, they might have designed the system differently. Mm -hmm. We think, you know— there are trolls online simply because it's it's like the dark side of human nature. But in fact, the research shows that actually the way that these systems are designed can encourage and discourage certain kinds of behavior. Absolutely. I actually did some research on Gamergate when I was back in school and I was doing some journalism. And it seems pretty clear who is doing the harassing and who is on the bad end of receiving that harassment in many communities. And it it almost seems obvious that some sorts of people are dealing with these things almost as their natural way of interacting with these programs, like on Twitter and just other digital sort of forums and things like that. You know, it seems like in many cases, women are primarily receiving negative attention, especially when they reach a certain level. Whereas men don't always seem to have to deal with that, if if any at all. And that I, I can see why that would re- result in, you know, oh, like the, we can just use this to change the world. But, you know, if there's women involved in the leadership and in the creation of the product, that, that perspective changes to say, hey, these are the issues that we've experienced. And there is a chapter on Gamergate in the book, and mm-hmm. it is absolutely fascinating. One of the interesting bright spots is a company called Riot Games, which makes League of Legends. Yeah, that's right. What they found is that actually when they changed the rules, the sort of violent behavior, the harassing behavior Mm -hmm. really died down. And basically they, you know, increased sort of the the punishment. If you did break the rules, um, Mm -hmm. they incentivized good behavior. They uh, disincentivized negative behavior. And surprisingly, behavior changed. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, you just, we we can just throw up our hands and say, well, people are mean. It's just going to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And so, you know, I sort of think, well, if women had been involved in creating some of these systems from the start, would video games be so violent? Would online trolling and harassment be such a problem? Would porn be so ubiquitous? Would we Mm -hmm. have better parental controls on things like YouTube? You know, the reality is if you don't have a diversity of, of people and perspectives on your team, you will have a blind spot no matter how hard you try to combat that. I mean, I talked to a lot of product managers and product designers for the book, for example, who said, we do user research, we talk to people, but in the end, you're making a personal decision. Absolutely. Which is based on your opinion and your experience when you're you know, writing, writing that code down. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, yes, the creator and who that creator is really matters. Mm-hmm. I wish that the thought behind Riot Games had been around when I was playing video games all my, all my upbringing and just shouting horrible things at my enemies as they shouted horrible things back playing online. I think I would have been a, 
better person had I grown up with that sort you of... You need to send the <laughs> Riot Games Tribunal after you and maybe you would have learned your lesson. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to talk about the family as well, because this is something that you address at many points in Brotopia with many different anecdotes and even with your own personal life and um, how you've experienced, you know, family life and what we're already talking about, you know, online harassment and that sort of thing. But the family and what it represents in terms of time spent together and who is a part of the family and how it develops has been altered by the Silicon Valley lifestyle and the hours that one must work to succeed in that realm. Can you talk about maybe some anecdotes that you um, put in the book? Silicon Valley has very much been built in the image of its mostly young, single, male, childless founders. It used to be like an acronym. And <laughs> if you go to Google or Facebook, you know, these are amazing campuses, but often amazing for a very specific kind of person. And one of the the things that I really looked into is how Silicon Valley sort of handles work and life and sort of the misconception that this is a wonderful place for all different kinds of people when in fact tech companies and startups are built for a very specific kind of person. And if you look at some of the data, it's shocking. Women are twice as likely to quit technology as mm -hmm. men are, and they're not going home to take care of their families. They're leaving for jobs in other fields. Women are 807% more likely to leave tech than they are to leave jobs in other fields. And the reason is- that That's is huge. It is outrageous. As I was reading these numbers, I was like, why, isn't, why aren't more people talking about this? The reason is that the environment's created a lot of these companies are just not ha hospitable for different mm -hmm. kinds of people, people of different age ranges. You know, I think ageism in technology is is really underreported. There's just not a lot of Absolutely. data on it. But if you are a mom with kids or even a dad with kids, you're often feeling left out. For mm -hmm. example, I tell the story of Brett Taylor, who was the CTO of Facebook as he was having his first child. And he said, you know, Mark Zuckerberg would often invite him to dinner and he was, you know, constantly in, in this, you know, conflict. Do I say no and be that uncool dad? Mm -hmm. Or do I say yes and, and tell my wife, all right, putting the baby down is on you tonight? Yeah, yeah. When in reality, he was like, I couldn't say no to dinner with Mark Zuckerberg. There are so many things about just how these companies are built. You know, just the idea that we are at technologies back and call all the mm -hmm. time that we can answer messages on Slack or email or whatever it is, you know, way into the evening, you know, that's just not necessarily hospitable to, you know, building a, 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 a strong and diverse culture. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting companies I profiled was Slack, where they've really made it a priority to have people of different ages, to source people mid-career. Um, and their motto is work hard and go home. You know, we don't have ping pong tables. <laughs> we don't serve dinner. A lot of these companies serve dinner, which oh, sounds right. yeah. great, but it also has this sort of implicit implication that you are expected to stick around. Mm -hmm. um, or that and, there's at least a benefit if you do to a certain right, hour. You know, people should be going home and doing whatever they wanted, whether that's taking care of their family, whether that's going for a run, whether mm -hmm. that's hanging out with Exercise. friends. You know, we need to be, we need well-rounded workers if we are going to be a happy and productive workforce. Mm -hmm. And then there's the sort of public view of certain major players as well. Marissa Meyer, who is, I'm sorry, can you remind me what her, her role is again? Marissa Meyer 
was the CEO of Yahoo, and before that, she worked at Google for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. She was one of Google's first female employees. And when she became CEO of Yahoo, she was actually pregnant. Mm -hmm. And she decided to take a two-week maternity leave. And this became an international event. There were people everywhere criticizing the fact that she was only taking two weeks. And the reality is if she was a man who was about to have a child, no one would have even known. And so in my view, she was penalized for being a woman Mm -hmm. and being a mom. And, you know, I'm not saying we should not criticize our business leaders. We should hold them up to very high standards, but let's make sure we're critiquing them fairly. Yeah, in an equitable way. Right. And, you know, same with Sheryl Sandberg, who's the COO at Facebook, Mm -hmm. who has, you know, she wrote Lean In and she's made, you know, women in the workforce one of her, her main the main, you know, the, really the main thing on her agenda. And, you know, she also was criticized, I believe unfairly, for, for things that I, that just weren't weren't fair game. For example, there was one headline, you know, Sheryl Sandberg and Marissa Meyer, are they setting back the cause of working moms? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, seriously? There are so few women in positions of power in Silicon Valley, so few role models. And, you know, I think we need to see a lot of different kinds of of leadership in order to break down some of these stereotypes, which is not going to happen until we see more women in leadership. Of course. And you also just talk about how these women don't always get the sort of national profile that the men do. They don't get the the claim to fame through just, you know, media coverage in positive ways for the contributions that they're making. And it seems like some of them don't even mind that because, I mean, it just doesn't seem like there is a a model for how to create, you know, a a great public profile for women in that way. How we tell stories about these people matters. For example, Mm -hmm. Susan Wojcicki, who's the CEO of YouTube, she was also one of Google's first employees. She conceived essentially their incredible ad business, which makes billions and billions of dollars a year. She led the acquisitions of DoubleClick, led the acquisitions of YouTube. She's now running YouTube. She has Mm -hmm. five children. She brings a different managerial style to the table because she is one of few women executives at Google. Mm -hmm. She is an incredible female success story, but a lot of people don't even know her name. And so I made it a point. I didn't know it until it was in the book. (laughs) (laughs) I made it a point to tell her story Mm -hmm. because I think, you know, we are so accustomed to describing men as geniuses or visionaries, but that's not a word we use to describe women. And until we bust some of those stereotypes, we're not going to create the space Mm -hmm. for for more women Mm -hmm. in leadership. Absolutely. I also want to talk about the other ideas of diversity that go into the workplace. You know, this book is primarily about women, but you do in many ways and in an entire chapter or two address the importance of intersectionality and thinking about uh, different races. And you've already mentioned, you know, these things, ages and just a, a broad spectrum of people coming in and influencing what's being built, what the teams are doing, how people are thinking about these products, et cetera. And there's some alarming statistics. You've already given some really alarming ones, but there's some equally alarming ones, I think, about just the representation of different races in uh, Silicon Valley Silicon Valley companies and in tech. I think it's like 2% of employees are African-American, 1% are um, Latinx, just very, very few are representing these companies and let alone in positions of power. It's like, it just feels like zero in some cases. And this goes back to, you know, creator's bias and, and what we can do to reduce the chance that, you know, big errors will be made that just discriminate against people. 
But it's also a matter of just equality of opportunity, I think, and just the fact that these spaces seem so exclusive to some types of people. I'm a firm believer that if you don't see yourself, you know, in the people that are working in a space or, you know, creating or doing a thing, it's harder to to move into that space because – and I think this is um, – Impo- or what? Sorry, what's imposter the term? syndrome. Imposter syndrome. I think that's what I'm getting at here. Um, and you address this a lot. Can you just talk a little bit about what you found in this realm? Right. So obviously, diversity isn't just about white women, mm-hmm. and there's so much more, and so many people of underrepresented backgrounds that are underrepresented grossly in the technology industry. In the fourth chapter of my book. I talk about a dinner where I invited 12 yeah, women engineers of all great, kinds of backgrounds, great conversation. Um, all different colors, sexualities, ages. And, you know, first of all, in general, the prevailing feeling was that they have to do so much emotional labor day after day just to prove that they deserve to be there because mm-hmm. they're often the only woman in the room over and over and over again. And they felt like, they constantly were trying to prove to their male colleagues, you know, why they had a seat mm-hmm. at the table. And that's exhausting. And Absolutely. that's frustrating. Now, add on to that being a woman of color mm-hmm. or um, not going to college or coming from a family where your parents were janitors. All of these things are part of your identity mm-hmm. um, and can sort of multiply the level of exhaustion that you feel if you're a double minority or a triple minority. And so, you know, for example, there were um, a couple of black women in the room and and one of the women told the story about how the day after the election and President Trump was elected and all of the white women in the office came in crying and they were so upset (sighs) that Hillary Clinton had lost. Meantime, you know, a few months earlier, three black teenagers had been shot in one week and she came to the office and she wanted to cry, but felt like she couldn't and she ran into the bathroom. And so, you know, it's really important to create spaces where A, you can bring your whole self to work and be yourself and be authentic, whatever that means, whether you want to share your feelings or not. Mm -hmm. But also we have to recognize identity means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You know, there was another woman in the room who hadn't gone to college, but she was an engineer at Uber. And yet she said over and over again, people just don't seem to believe that I'm real. Yeah, that's impressive. But are you a real engineer? (laughs) She's like, no matter how many names I stack on my resume, the fact that I don't have a college degree, people take that as a red flag. Um, You know, we already talked about if you're you're a parent and you have, whether you're a man or a woman and you have have several children and you're the person who who needs to leave work to take your kids to the doctor or or pick them up from school. Um, There is another woman who a Latina woman whose whose, uh, father was a janitor. And -hmm. she's like, I go to work and I feel like people don't see me Mm -hmm. sometimes. And so, you know, building a diverse team means a lot of different things. And, you know, most importantly, I think, you know, it's a matter of listening and, you know, making sure that people feel that they can be heard. Mm -hmm. For the first time in in a long time, people are speaking up. And that is great. Oh, yeah. As part of this overall movement, we also need to listen. Hey, hate to interrupt this conversation with Emily Chang, but I just wanted to let you know where you can learn more about the research she has done on Silicon Valley. We did a full workshop that offers many more anecdotes and lessons from the field. But as usual, she recorded this interview exclusively for MentorBox Online. To access that, plus tons more, go to MentorBox.com. Okay, back to the show. 
I'm thinking about meritocracy now that we've talked about this a little bit and how you discuss just the inherent flawed nature of American meritocracy and especially in Silicon Valley. I did some work in the education sector more or less with publishing and I learned from a lot of professors how disparate their classes and their students coming in appear to be based on, you know, background, socio socioeconomic background and that sort of thing. And it's it's become pretty evident to me that meritocracy is a very flawed and sometimes misunderstood concept in many different industries. And I think tech is probably a great example of this because it, it's easy to pick those that act and speak and do the same sorts of things as you and have the same sorts of achievements to move up and to work with you. But it's also easier to find those people, especially if, you know, the group that's hiring them already looks that way. And again, I think this goes back to the idea of if you can see yourself in a space, it's easier to envision yourself in that space. If you can see somebody who looks and acts and, you know, represents your background, it's easier to move into that space. What can we do to to alter this idea of meritocracy? What, what already has been done? I think Google had some some good plans put into place early on um, that worked a little bit. I mean, maybe some other companies that you know of have had similar ideas. So first of all, we need to recognize that meritocracy is an, an impossible to achieve yeah. in practice. Fully agree. We should no longer use that term to describe <laughs> Silicon Valley yeah, because if Silicon Valley really was a true meritocracy, we'd see 50% of the, the workers here being female. Mm-hmm. And the stats are direct evidence that you know, not only is a meritocracy impossible to achieve, but you are right that it is a flawed idea. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when we believe that we are operating in a meritocracy, we can actually be even more biased because we assume everybody is in their right place and where they deserve to be. Mm-hmm. And we're blinded. We're blind to the discrimination and systemic factors working against everyone else. Google had an interesting committee in the early days called the Revisit Committee, whereby Mm -hmm. if a woman or a person of color was rejected, they would give them a second chance and take another look. That committee no longer exists in that form at Google, but it was a way to keep people from falling through the cracks. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, one of the things that we can do is don't even start an interview process until you have two qualified female candidates or people of color. You know, making sure that you're doing structured review and feedback systems so that even the way that you are doling out feedback is not biased. You know, if we just focus on raising awareness about unconscious bias, that won't necessarily have a ton of impact. But mm-hmm. if you give people the tools to combat their bias, that can have a lot of impact. And so, you know, it's not just about bringing a diverse group of people into the company, but making sure that people are being promoted fairly and paid fairly. The paid gap in Silicon Valley is five times the national average. To me, that is the easiest thing to fix (laughs) for an industry that loves data. Look at the data, Mm -hmm. pay people the same, and it can go a long way to making them feel valued. Mm -hmm. And I do think transparency around salaries is is really important, and I'm excited to, to, to see the national conversation around that really taking off. And I think we need more companies and people like Mark Benioff, where they did a comprehensive pay review at Salesforce. He's the CEO of Salesforce. It took two years. It was hard work. But now... Everything they're you know they're starting on, the, on a level playing field, mm-hmm. so that when anyone new comes into the company, they know that the page is fresh. Mm-hmm. 
we're getting into some actionable ideas now, and I want to see how many we can sort of flush out as we move along. As we move along toward the end of the book, you give six, seven, eight sort of main points that you think that people should focus on as we move forward, as different companies and facets of the industry move forward. And there are some different categories that I think are most important, thinking about leadership, eliminating the idea of meritocracy, just doing this sort of thing where you're actually seeking diverse candidates instead of just pulling up whoever you know appears and is and is best at, at first view, um, but also encouraging the folks that are less likely to come into the space to do their best to do so. And I I want to hear you know what your advice is for for women and for people of color and older people, et cetera, disabled people. What what you think they can do? Because from my perspective, you know, again, I'm a man. I think of myself in terms of being an ally and my best job I can do is listen first and seek out those voices. So what what do you think these folks can do now that you've had all this experience in the realm of tech? Well, first of all, find your team, find your allies. Wherever you work, there are so many comp- companies out there that are desperate for new talent, desperate mm-hmm. for diverse talent. And so you have the power in this situation. When you're choosing a job, look for a place with an environment and a team that will support you where mm-hmm. you can be yourself and you can learn. And if you don't find that where you are, you know, there are other options. How do you think people can do that before actually entering into a company? Are there resources that you know of or anything along those lines? Talk to as many people as possible. Do your research. Do reference checks. Um, You know, there are so many resources out there to figure out who works where and, you know, use your network to leverage those resources. You know, and also, look, if you want to start a company, do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's never been a better time. Everybody is looking for great people outside their network mm-hmm. to fund. There is a certain amount of leaning in that I think we all can do. Absolutely. But that said, you know, the system really needs to change and we need men and women to be part of this. And so I think there's so much to be done around mentorship and advocacy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can't always expect the victim, whoever that is, to speak up in the moment. You know, Absolutely. sometimes it, you know, we need people to be calling that out. So if you see someone being interrupted or being mansplained or not getting an opportunity, mm-hmm. say something, say something, you know, to someone else, maybe not in the moment or not in that room, um, but that can have a huge impact. Most importantly, I do think change needs to come from the top and we need CEOs to make this a priority, not like the 10th or 15th thing on the list, but number one, two or three. We need investors to push their companies to build diverse teams from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just about hiring all the people you know or all of your friends that you think are good at this stuff. When you're building a company, you should be actively looking for people who believe in your mission but don't look like you because Mm -hmm. your company will be better for it. And a certain amount of patience is also important. You know, it might take three weeks to find the right white dude for the job. It might take three months to to find a woman or a person of color, but that will pay off. In three years, you'll be happy you spent that time to find the right person because the longer you go without fixing this, um, without dealing with this, the harder it is to change. I mean, Mm DeCostolo, who was the CEO of Twitter, told me it's like trying to turn around an aircraft carrier. (laughs) And you get to a certain point where it does feel like it's impossible. I don't think it is impossible, but it is Mm -hmm. a lot harder to change when you, you know, are beyond even, you know, 10, 50, 100 people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you do have the power to start thinking about these things early on. Write down your values. Think 
think hard about the kind of company you want to build and who you want to be part of it. Yeah. I think we're getting into a whole new issue now, actually, when we talk about, you know, starting your own business and investing in all of that, because I think in many ways, that's the toughest part of that aircraft carrier to turn around is the fact that the money exists in a certain population, especially in Silicon Valley and, you know, investment and that sort of thing. And you address this at, you know, at length in the book, the investments are coming from certain people to the same kind of people in a lot of cases. And you mentioned that even when the investment money is coming from women, in a lot of cases, they're just kind of forced to focus on success and numbers. And at the end of the day, because the industry is this far in that direction, it's very difficult to stop that economic flow. Would you agree? One of the most fascinating parts of my research had to do with how investors perceive men and women differently mm-hmm. and male and female investors, by the way. Men are, first of all, they get 52% of the funding they ask for. Women get 25% of what they ask for. Qualities that are considered positive in men are considered negative in women. So if a man is young, he's considered high potential. If a woman is young, she's considered inexperienced. If a, uh, a man is cautious, that's a good thing. If a woman is cautious, that's a bad thing. And, you know, it goes back to this idea of, you know, we don't think of women as visionaries, as geniuses. And so when investors are looking to fund a male entrepreneur, they're making a simple risk benefit calculation. Do we like this person? Do we like this idea? Can he execute when they're looking at a woman? It's a whole bigger calculation of, but can she really do this? And (laughs) is she going to have children? Or if she has children, how is she going to balance it? Well, she's just going to balance it like everybody else, like all the men out there. You know, when, you know, I have three children and when they ask me, but, oh my God, how do you do it? I'm like, just like you, you know, um, we're all constantly doing this sort of juggling act in our lives. And so you're right that the way that capital is doled out is absolutely not fair. And, you know, the vast majority of investors are men and the vast majority of limited partners, which are the investors who fund venture capital firms are men. But I am seeing a lot of exciting movement in terms of, you know, sort of female venture capitalists going out and starting their own funds, Mm -hmm. female limited partners like Belinda Gates, um, who I recently interviewed, who are really focused on funding female venture capitalists, um, a new nonprofit called All Raise, which is focused on getting more women into venture capital and more female founders funded. And there honestly has been more action in the last year than there has been in the last 50 years. And so I'm really encouraged by that. It will take some time. It's not yeah. going to happen overnight, but I'm I'm really, really hopeful. Do you think that action is in response to what has been going on in the the, the rise up of the evidence that all these big figures are just not great people, you know, from Hollywood to tech, all that stuff that's been happening. Do you think the action is in response to that? I do think it is part of it. And I think a lot of these women have found sort of their own personal courage with the help of the national conversation that we're mm-hmm. having. Yeah, they've movement. always been committed to this, but for a lot of them, I know they've been really focused on their own reputations and building their own funds and their Mm -hmm. own track record because that is what, at the end of the day, they're still measured on, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, but ultimately I've been really impressed by how they're kind of taking matters into their own hands and saying, well, if the industry isn't going to change, we're going to make it, Mm -hmm. you know, we are going to compel these changes that have been really long overdue. And people listen to the squeaky wheel. Nobody wants to hear that over and over and over again. (laughs) 
And so I'm just so glad to hear more women out there talking about this and trying to bust down these walls brick by brick. It's interesting that you make that squeaky wheel comment. One of the biggest stories that you tell in the book is it's the Uber story, I think, where I can't remember the name of the employee. Susan Fowler. Susan Fowler, yeah. So she she goes to HR multiple times, I believe, and they kind of say, are you sure it's not you that's the issue here or something along those lines? And she's like, oh, man, like I – she kind of realizes like I don't like have a place to really actually tell people that this is wrong because it's just not perceived as wrong what's going on here. And I think I'm glad that we've sort of reversed that paradigm of understanding what's right and wrong to an extent. But do you have any advice for those who maybe don't feel comfortable? I mean, you, you've already said, you know, find your team, find your allies, uh, do the research to make sure that those people are in place. But I'm sure that and maybe outside of you know tech and Silicon Valley, there's plenty of spaces where that ability to go to HR and to to warn others of you know foul play of this sort and discrimination just isn't as easy. Coming forward is still a risky calculation, Absolutely. whether you're coming forward to the press or you're even coming forward at your own company. And so I do think it goes back to finding people who you trust at your company, who you can share things with if that's not the head of HR, and figuring out what your path forward is. It's going to be different mm-hmm. for everyone. You know, women come to me all the time saying, should I come forward? And, you know, oh, it's wow. a really personal decision. It's a really personal decision. I do think women are being listened to more than they ever have. So if there's a time to do it, that time is now. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to be on the wrong side of history. And there's so much public pressure that is working in favor of sort of doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but again, I I think in any environment you're in, you want to have people you trust and good mentors. And so, you know, just having someone that you can talk this through with is is really important. Mm-hmm. I have heard occasionally in the media from certain people that you might expect a sort of language from, and even people that I engage with regularly in Silicon Valley, that coming forward is a trend now. That's not something that I personally agree with or believe in, but it does seem to be a growing sentiment that that being a whistleblower or just telling of your personal experience, the issues that you've faced is a trend and it's easier now or that it's, it's something that you can benefit from. What's your response to that? Well, that makes me a little angry, not going to lie. I think there are so many, even though we've heard from so many people in the last year, there are so many stories that will never be told. Mm -hmm. I have a pile of tips on my desk this high. And these stories are really hard to tell. As a journalist, you're talking about putting someone's career at stake. You are you know, reliant on the bravery of a few victims who have a lot to lose. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of these stories won't ever be told. And so I do think that the stories that are being told are in some ways giving voice to decades and decades and decades of women being silenced. And so it's about time. It's about about time. time. This is not a trend. Let me tell you, for anyone who has shared their story, it's painful. It's hard. And even though we might in the aftermath sort of paint them as as heroines or, or heroes, there's a lot that they have to deal with if they do go public. 
And so and probably have to continue to deal with absolutely. I mean, harassment it's a, and that sort of thing. It's probably a year automatically long process and they have to deal with, you know, their families and their children knowing. And, you know, whenever they search for their name on Google, this is the first thing that comes up. Yeah, that's yeah, a that's right. weighty calculation. Absolutely. And so I think we should be grateful to the people who are coming forward that they've been willing to take that risk because it is a huge part of making the change happen that is so essential. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I think we can wrap up there. Um, Emily, do you want to give a quick call to action? Um, maybe <laughs> a last piece of encouragement to all those that might be struggling and also just what people can, how people can learn more from you. I wrote this book to start a meaningful conversation and it's a conversation that everybody needs to be involved in, mm-hmm. men and women, people across all levels of all organizations. And, you know, I just really hope that now Everyone can talk about it amongst Mm -hmm. themselves. You know, this is just the beginning, but I do believe that the people who are changing the world in so many other ways, taking us to Mars and building self-driving cars and connecting the world, they can hire women, pay them fairly, and fund their ideas. Silicon Valley has never shied away from hard problems. This problem is not too hard for us to solve. Mm -hmm. We cannot say any longer that we didn't know or we didn't understand because I've written 300 pages about it. And at this point, (laughs) ignorance can only be willful. And I know that there are so many people out there that want to create better workplaces and stronger companies and better products. In the end, this is not just the right thing to do. This is the smart thing to do to create a better world for everyone. And what's coming next from you? Is there a follow-up to this book? Any other projects? Um, well, Anything I'm, you can talk about? I'm on tour. I'm talking at a lot of different companies. I've been really encouraged by, you know, companies like Amazon and Microsoft and LinkedIn and companies that are inviting me in that could easily have said, your book is called Brotopia. No, thank you. Yeah. But, you know, they're open to having this conversation. And I think that's really important. You know, that is the first step. And creating safe spaces for people to talk about things, men and women. That's the only way that we're going to make a difference. And so I'm really excited to be part of of starting that. Mm-hmm. And I believe that in, you know, five, 10 years, the conversation will be different. Um, and I'm not going to stop until, <laughs> you know, a woman engineer or a woman CEO or a woman entrepreneur or a woman directing Hollywood movies or running for president or being president until that's normal mm-hmm. because that's really where we need to get we need to get to absolutely women are are so capable of all of those things and and talent has been untapped for far too long and i think if we are able to capitalize on everything that women have to contribute we'll all be better for it mm-hmm. well emily thank you so much for doing your part to start this conversation i it was a great read everybody be sure to pick up brotopia breaking up the boys club of Silicon Valley. Um, And again, thank you for having me into your beautiful Bloomberg business studio. It's a wonderful space. Thank you. I I feel a little bad because I've got the view of the the ships going by under the Bay Bridge and you've been looking at the (laughs) wall. Just looking Um, at a little bit of a view of the tall Oh, I can see the Transamerica Pyramid there. That's not too bad, I guess. I'll give you a little tour on the way out. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Well, thank you so much again. Emily Chang, author of Brotopia and everybody listening in, thank you so much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at MentorBox.com. 
And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts, as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.